Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Boy, how times have changed. People living with HIV AIDS today, as bad as that is, are not without opportunities. They have access to new miracle drugs. For the most part, they've got the loving support of family and friends, and they can count on dedicated first-class medical care. But that wasn't always the case. Back in the 1980s, when the first victims of HIV AIDS first appeared, many people turned against them out of fear. Politicians tried to ban gays from classrooms, swimming pools, or restaurants. Even some nurses and doctors feared caring for AIDS patients. That's when Cliff Morrison, a young nurse at San Francisco General Hospital, stepped forward. He convinced the management of SF General to create a special ward, 5B, just to provide special loving care for AIDS patients, most of whom would never survive the disease. And eventually, overcoming intense opposition from homophobic opponents both inside and outside the hospital, 5B became the model for the rest of the world. It's now featured in a powerful new documentary, 5B, which celebrates the heroic work done by nurses at SF General, led by Cliff Morrison. Cliff sat down with me recently to tell his story. Good to see you. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. So um, you came from maybe the most conservative part of Florida, up in the Panhandle, a little time in Miami, and then you land in San Francisco. And San Francisco and the Castro, it was, what was it like in those days? Pretty wild, huh? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of the panhandle of Florida. Um, you know, I stood out like a sore thumb, uh, although I did I did well. I was a farm boy. I worked in a little town and, uh, you know, got uh, didn't like working in the fields, so managed to get myself to, to working in a hospital, first mopping the floors mm. and then becoming an orderly. Um, and, and so that was my out, and no one in my family had been to co- had graduated from high school, high school, or been to college. So, so that was my out. By the age of ten, I was like, I'm getting out of here. Went to Jacksonville, found myself in Miami, and thought, Wow, I've arrived right there with disco. Um, <clears throat> and um, and then Anita Bryant came along, and luckily, I'd had a good friend in high school in a college from uh, San Francisco. And had been visiting there for a number of years and would always go into summer when it was so much cooler. And uh, just one day, uh, you know, got this offer for a part-time, you know, a a short-term one-year gig to work on a project at UCSF and San Francisco General. And would I like to work on it? And I said, sure, you know, Mm. thinking, Mm. you know, I'll do a year. I'll get it out of my system. I'll go back to Miami, Miami's home. Uh, But 40 years later, I'm still in the Bay Area. And the, the the documentary, which we'll talk about uh, after some initial scenes of you in the abandoned uh, ward at uh, San Francisco General, shows a, a lot of the night scene at uh, the Castro, which yeah. was in, was pretty lively at the time. It was. And then suddenly there was a dark cloud that came over it. 
Mm-hmm. When did that happen, and what did you see? Because I, I had spent time in San Francisco and, and literally moved. I didn't move right into the Castro. I lived in the neighborhood next to the Castro and then above the Castro and uh, <clears throat> for 20 years. But um, uh, certainly enjoyed being there. Always, uh, you know, I was in my middle 20s then, and, and uh, I was always energized by it. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of good friends there. Even before the first inkling of HIV and AIDS, I, I remember thinking to myself, this is almost too good to be true. Something, this bubble's going to burst. There's too much politics around this. There's too, you know, I'm here in San Francisco and this feels like the safe place to be, but uh, I'm not sure about the rest of the country. I'm not sure about what the future holds for us. I I, 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 underneath it all, I think I was always just a little bit vigilant. My roommate at the time said that I was downright paranoid and was always looking for things. So, <laughs> so then, um, as a nurse, patients started coming in with this disease or this illness that nobody knew what it was. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we started seeing them at San Francisco General. Uh, I've got to say a lot during these interviews that the first case, looking back on it, that I dealt with was my roommate, um, good friend from Miami who followed me out six months later and just needed a place to live for a while. We were just good friends and started working at San Francisco General but didn't have benefits or anything, and he was younger than me, and I was always the steady person. I was always the one who went to work and was responsible. And... Uh, uh, he was always out partying, and, and I used to say to him, you know, there's all this partying out here, but, you know, we've got to use a little discretion here. This is, you can't live this way. Uh, we're not going to be young forever. And I came home from work one, one late one afternoon, and he was laying in the hallway, uh, you know, mm. barely breathing, barely conscious. And uh, so I scooped him up, put him in bed, started taking care of him, and he was delirious, no health care insurance. Contacted a doctor friend of mine who said, yeah, you know, I've seen something like this. Bring him over to the office first thing in the morning. And they immediately admitted him to one of the local hospitals and immediately isolated him. I'd never seen isolation like it. And they immediately said to me, you've got to put on all this stuff. I said, listen, I've been taking care of this guy for two days. Um, You know, I've had him in my bed. I've bathed him. I've, you know, I've done everything. I've been his nurse. Come on. You know, if he's, you know, if, if he's that contagious, whatever he's got, I've got. So that's when I started, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not buying all this other bullshit. I'm not doing that. And then um, you saw there were more patients that came in like that. Uh, and then um, as the documentary now, 5B, which uh, is, will be up, hopefully nominated for an Academy Award this year, soon to be released uh, nationwide. Um, all about your efforts, successful efforts with the help of a lot of friends, to found a special ward at San Francisco General to deal with what became known as AIDS patients. Um, Here is a little touch of 5B. Let's listen to a little bit of the trailer about what the movie is all about. The 70s were about that attempt that we made to carve out a place for ourselves in society that had never been done before. It is a big deal. 1981 was when things really began to change. We had patients that came through with this illness. Within a month or two, 
Boom, he was gone. Nearly 3,000 cases of AIDS have already hit this city. Nobody even knew how it was uh, spread. They wanted to quarantine us on an island. I had seen patients being marginalized, and I just found it infuriating. We were expected to wear what we called spacesuits, and some would refuse to give care. We have to do something. At San Francisco General Hospital, the staff is gearing up for the opening of a special wing to treat AIDS victims. The nurses there physically built that ward. They made the rules as they went along. <laughs> I don't want nobody here to give up. And I don't think that they will. I saw what a toll it was taking on us. I was drinking more every night. I remember having recurrent nightmares. We were being attacked on all fronts, politically, medically. There was a guy who had applied for insurance, and they couldn't ask him if he was gay. So they said, have you ever worked as a florist, a hairdresser, or a decorator? There were still nurses operating from fear. They went to the union. We don't want to take care of these people. I might have some anxiety about this, but I'm more pissed off and angry than I am scared. Why not bring life and laughter and joy? This was a tangible thing you could do. It's just part of nursing. They stood up when nobody else would, and they were willing to take those risks. And they're all kind of kick-ass, even the straight ones. They're getting the trailer from 5bfilm.com, available as of August 27, nationwide, at 5bfilm.com. Believe me, it's a very, very powerful documentary. Well worth your time. It's an hour 34, uh, perfect length as far as I'm concerned, and well worth your time. So check it out. So, Cliff, you're a junior nurse, <laughs> uh, strapping young man there. And how did you manage to get the, the leadership of the hospital to give you like your, an entire ward to set up care for these AIDS patients the way you want to do it? Um. Very interesting question, but, but uh, you know, it, there was a lot involved. Uh, first of all, I looked like a junior nurse, uh, and a lot of people thought I was 10 years younger than I was, uh, but I had already been a nurse for over 10 years at that mm -hmm. point. And uh, I had already held responsible positions. I already had two master's degrees. I'd already been hmm. uh, in management. I'd already been an administrator. I'd already been teaching. So I came with credentials. It's one of the reasons you see wanted me there. Right. And so early on, I, you know, I found myself in kind of this advisory role. I was advising on, I came from Miami during hurricanes. At that time, San Francisco General hadn't yet developed an earthquake strategy disaster plan for the hospital. And so uh, one of the administrators said, you've worked on this stuff. You actually put a hospital through, through mm. a, a hurricane. And I was like, yeah. So, so they started putting me on all these committees and I started consulting on all sorts of things. And kind of what happens I think in most industries you know you you kind of yeah. build your reputation mm -hmm. you know by doing that and that's what happened for me uh, so by the time the first cases came along and uh, uh, because I was a medical clinical nurse specialist they were calling me but primarily they called me because uh, I accidentally had had attended a CE seminar continuing education seminar at the hospital on sexuality at the end of it, this nurse was talking about that she had started this KS clinic with 
University of California, and they were working with these patients. And there was this group in the community, and it was going to become a big deal. And I raised my hand and said, we're already seeing them. Mm. At the end of it, I went up and spoke with her. And she gave me information about how to become involved and how to become a Shanti volunteer. So how did you, how are these patients treated in other hospitals or other wards? And what did you do differently in 5B? At, at that point in time, people were treated pretty badly everywhere. Uh, any, any hospital that was seeing AIDS patients, first of all, they all wanted to send them to their county hospitals uh, you know, or to a teaching hospital to get them away because no one knew what to do. Uh, their care was abysmal. Uh, they were often neglected. Uh, meals were left outside doors. Uh, you know, big signs were posted on doors, um, you know, infectious disease, you know, big red almost flashing kinds of signs. Uh, visitors weren't allowed. Uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty bad. I was I was the first time I saw it I was totally appalled and said this this cannot happen. We can't do this. Uh, visitors or nurses had to wear spacesuits? If they went in, but most of them wouldn't even go in. Most people would stand at the door. Even visitors would stand at the door. And you say in the documentary, people need human contact. Yes. So that that was sort of your mission. That was my whole thing. It's it's you know if we can't cure these people, we're going to touch them. Um, you know that's basic human nature. Um, I'm I'm in a helping, caring profession. That's what we do. When people when people are in distress, I hold them. And you know that's the most powerful thing in the world you can do is to put your hand on the hand of someone else and say, "I'm here, I'm here for you." To cradle them in your arms when they're in pain or, or when they feel like that the, that you know life is slipping away and they're in total despair. What what more human thing can any of us do? I'm, I I don't want to sound you know like 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 Mother Teresa, but <laughs> but I felt like it. And it was a real difference for these people, as you can see in the documentary. It was. They, they immediately responded. And the, so uh, someone there says that our mission is not to cure. Our mission is to care. Yes. That doesn't sound so revolutionary, but it was. It was. At the time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, healthcare medicine was going through a major change at the, you know, at that particular point in time. Um, you know, we were still embracing the medical model. We still do to a great extent in this country. The rest of the world doesn't. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the medical model except the way that in this country, the way it's practiced and the way it's set up. And you focus just on the medical model, you miss so much more. It's all about caring. It's all about prevention. It's all about all the other alternative things that you can do to support people. How many people are we talking about? Today? In your in those days. Oh, in, in those days? In the, in the ward. How many oh. patients? Uh, hundreds, hundreds. Uh, by the time by the time the unit opened, there were literally hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands, of people living with AIDS in San Francisco You're at that time. Nineteen eighty-one. Well, we opened the unit in July, July twenty-fifth, <laughs> anniversary next week, um, um, nineteen eighty-three. Nineteen eighty-three. Did any of them survive? Yes, interestingly enough, one of my closest friends now, who was never never a patient on the unit, he actually spent time on the unit with me, 
and did did some volunteer work there and worked with me later on conferences and stuff. Um, and um, uh, Michael was probably one of the first people that was diagnosed with AIDS before they knew what it was. He was an officer in the military, and the military didn't know what to do with him, so they just gave him full retirement and put him out. <clears throat> so uh, he was one of those people. He lucked up. He's lived well. He's in his middle 70s. Uh, he's you know, he's got enough money to live on comfortably, and he's still kicking, and I see him all the time. He's a rare exception. He's a rare exception. I mean, we now was, know that he was one of those one of those that probably had partial uh, immunity, uh, was a non-progressor for many years. For almost everyone who came in, it was a death sentence. It was a death sentence. You did not expect them to. No one expected to live. I mean, everybody said, I'm going to beat this, but we knew. We knew. I mean, we were focused on this was a this was a geared up approach to hospice. We worked closely mm-hmm. with hospice. I totally believed in their philosophy. Welcome them in, work with them, and Shanti. Um, but but we knew that we were looking at terminal end of life care, and what we wanted to do was to be able to provide the best quality and, and care and to make people as comfortable as possible around the people that they loved and the things that they loved. Uh, in the documentary, again, it's 5beatfilm.com, um, you uh, play a principal role in talking about the founding of the, the, the ward and the work there. Um, you had some help from some extraordinary people. One of them, Alison Moad. She yes. was the Managing nurse, I believe, right? Yeah, Allison. Allison was Allison Tell us was about one of the. <clears throat> Allison was one of the original twelve nurses that I hired. One of the things I'm going to try to do as this film gets re-released now to go to go streaming, is to have them put an addendum on the end about the 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 group of original nurses and the five that have died since then. I want them memorialized. Uh, Allison was one of the first nurses that I hired. I met her working there in the hospital. We we were totally simpatico. You can tell that in the film. Uh, she became my chief ally. We worked t- together very closely. And when I was promoted, I made her the head nurse of the unit. I was never a head nurse. I was always the AIDS coordinator. But at some point, because I began to run the whole medical division of the hospital, I had to have somebody to run that unit specifically, so I made her the head nurse. Very courageous, uh, her role comes across in the documentary. And then um, there was, I don't believe she was a nurse, but a woman by the name of Rita Rocket. Rita Rocket, yes. What was was her contribution? Rita Rocket's this wonderful, vivacious, uh, she's still around, she's done some traveling with us. Uh, She lives in Ohio, Uh, but she was just a fixture in the Castro, just one of those... You know, the 1980s, uh, San Francisco was filled with characters. I lived, you know, just down the road from Sylvester, mm-hmm. who'd come flying by on his motorcycle, you know, with the flowing um, uh, robes and the scarves and everything. And Rita Rocket was this um, uh, travel agent, restaurant worker, food server, whatever. And she lived in she lived in the Castro and loved gay boys and loved the bars. And she started doing these entertainment things just to raise money for events or whatever. And then she adopted 5B. And then she started doing brunches every other Sunday. Uh, she contacted Allison and Allison said, come on in. When I met her, I was like, by that time we were using 
community stuff. I mean, we took everything that we could get and we were fortunate. I mean, uh, it was one of the reasons that people really, a lot of people didn't like what we were doing. They were like, you've made this look like a party over here. All these people are getting things that nobody else has gotten. Well, they had nothing. So, so it was wonderful to me and for the rest of us to see the community want to give us so much. And Rita was right there yeah. and she was bigger than life and she's wonderful. But not everybody was right there. Not even not all it. the nurses were right there. No, they weren't. So some of the nurses really felt threatened and um, tried to stop you and tried to force everyone to wear the mask and gloves and, and all of that and keep visitors out. Um, and that was a battle you had to fight. Yes, it was a tough one. I thought we were going to lose. Um, but I'm a very tenacious person, and when I look back on it, when I was younger, I just, <clears throat> no wasn't in my vocabulary. I just didn't accept that. I just, I stayed focused. I stayed focused. One of the things that I think comes across very clearly in that film is, if you notice, I was always focused. Um, I never deviated. People only saw a part of me, and it was a very manufactured part. The whole image, the way that I behaved, the way uh, things that I said. I was very, very careful what I said to the media. I stayed out of controversy as much as I could. I just stayed focused on exactly what I was doing, and that worked. But, but they took you to the State Department of Labor, to the Labor Board. Yes. Right, to challenge what you were doing. Yes, they wanted me gone. Force, <laughs> right, and to force you to change. Yes. And they lost. And they lost. I didn't think they would. I just, I, I just didn't, I just didn't think that 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 we had the kind of support. I knew that we did within the community. I just didn't think that within the legal bureaucracy, within the courts, within uh, the political bureaucracies, that there was enough support at that time because we were still early into it. So there was this group of nurses, and they lost. Um, and you did have this loyal group of of nurses that worked with you. I mean, the nurses. Are the real hero. They're the heroes, definitely. And the volunteers. God, we had so many volunteers and the Shanti people. Shanti, Shanti wasn't in the film, just in passing. But but uh, uh, we could have never we could have never done any of this without Shanti and hospice, uh, and and all the other volunteer groups that there were just numbers and numbers of them. I mean, people and groups that I can't remember their name. At the same time. You were fighting some, um, also in addition to these nurses, um, some pretty formidable foes in the political world. Yes. Uh, let's talk about a couple of them. Um, I would say you, you probably believe that President Ronald Reagan was not your friend at the time? No, he wasn't my friend, and he knew of me, and and, and he didn't like me. So <laughs> he, you know, let's keep all that out there. Let's, you know, We're not going to deal with this. I mean, he said that uh, it would that it would ban people who were HIV positive from coming into the country. Uh, he suggested that the people with HIV be quarantined. Yes. Um, sent to an island, maybe, mm -hmm. themselves. Sounds uh, familiar, doesn't it? Years, years went by before he even mentioned the word AIDS. Uh, I know uh, Hank Plant, uh, who was a reporter in San Francisco at the time, covering this issue, you, you work closely with him, Yes, um, pointed out, I believe in the documentary, that by the time Ronald Reagan 
did say the word AIDS, 21,000 Americans had died. Yes, at least. Mm-hmm. Right. So you had that opposition or indifference at the federal level. Uh, also at the federal level, uh, Congressman William Dannemeyer mm-hmm. from Orange County. Yes. Uh, and how did you counter that? I mean, he was out there um, n- not just against the work you were doing, mm-hmm. but outright homophobic, you know, homosexual is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, it's unchristian, it's un-American, boom, boom, boom. He was. He was after everybody. He specifically targeted me because I was an easy target. Uh, I mean, it's part of the reason that I was the focal point. The system, we'd never done with things. We'd never dealt with it, with what we were dealing with. So I kind of symbolized it. I was I was the sacrificial lamb. I knew it. I put myself out there to do it. Powers that be were willing to let me do it because if it failed, they had somebody to blame. If somebody got shot, it could be me. Everybody else could keep their hands clean. I took all the responsibility. I did that willingly. Nobody, you know, nobody hoodwinked me. I knew exactly what I was doing. So I was an easy, easy target. And Dannemeyer went for me. And he, his goal was, you know, I'll, I, I will tear this kid down right away. And then it'll be easy to just do everything else. So we can dismantle it. You've got the president of the United States against you. You've got leading California congressmen against you. How about the mayor of San Francisco? Diane Feinstein is just the most wonderful person in the world. I always wish she'd run for president. Um, Diane Feinstein's tough as nails. I mean, anybody who knows Diane Feinstein knows she's tough as nails. I had worked with her before this. I'd been, I had, I'd been a clinical nurse specialist. I'd been on the negotiating team for for union contracts, and I remember men holding themselves when they walk into the room dealing with her. Diane holds her own. Um, Did she support you? Did she help? She not only supported, I remember sitting in a room with her and with Dr. Merv Silverman, who was director of public health, and he arranged the meeting, the three of us, and she turned to him and she said, Merv, what do we do? I've got a surplus this year, and we can spend the money on this. Tell me what we need, and we'll do it. He told her, and she said, do it, and I'll support whatever it is that you and Cliff want to do. And... You know, I walked out of that room, and I remember I said to him, I said, I will follow her for the rest of her life, and I would vote for her. I don't care what she runs for. I hope she's going to be the first female president. I think she would have made a great one. But, yeah, I absolutely, absolutely have nothing but respect for Dianne Feinstein. She, she was one of those politicians that didn't hold back, that put it out there when things didn't, you know, when – when nobody really knew what we were doing, she didn't hesitate. That's what that's what a leadership that's what leadership is all about. And again, we're talking with Cliff Morrison, who is the uh, the star, if I may say that, of the uh, documentary Five B Film Five B Film dot com. Uh, will be will be available for streaming as of August twenty seven. A quick break, and we'll be right back. Again, we're talking with Cliff Morrison today. He's the man who started Ward 5B at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, featured in the new documentary 5B. And we're brought to you today by the International Association of Iron Workers, members of the Iron Workers Union under President Eric Dean. They are building America's communities today. More importantly, they're ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow if the Congress ever gets its act together. 
We salute the good members of the Iron Workers. Thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ironworkers.org. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Cliff, again, uh, welcome and thanks so much for spending time with us. Um, we were talking before the break about people who helped and people who didn't. Um, I wanted to ask you about one other group. Um, what kind of support, if any, did you get from ministers in the community? Uh, it's a very interesting question, uh, mainly because uh, uh, I am uh, a practicing Catholic, and the Archbishop Archbishop Quinn, he's now gone, uh, was our Archbishop. Uh, I was a leader at Most Holy Redeemer Parish, which if you've ever been in the Castro back in the 80s and the 90s up until the early 2000s, uh, Most Holy Redeemer was always known as the pink church in the Castro. <laughs> Long story behind that. We got some cheap paint. And, uh, you know, and he and, and I remember uh, father asked me, you know, I got this cheap paint. Can I paint it? And I was like, well, it'll certainly make it stand out. Well, it did. <laughs> and uh, but we started uh, we started an aid support group within a year after I opened the unit. Um, so so our parish and probably the uh, most holy redeemer is probably the only openly gay parish anywhere in the world that I know of. It always had just just. It, and, and a mixture of people, just wonderful neighborhood people, a lot of gays, a lot of straights, uh, and people just working together and just did a wonderful job uh, just providing all sorts of services in the community. Some of the other groups, not as much. Uh, some did some did a lot. I mean, MCC Church was always there. Some of the other religious groups um, uh, were fantastic. The more conservative ones didn't. They just stayed away. Um, and you also, uh, this was a time when the Westboro Baptist Church was yes. out there with Fred Phelps. And yes, he was there. Uh, picketing at the funerals, and that's something else you had to deal with. Yeah, it was the first and time then, I'd heard of, heard of Fred. I, I think he recently passed. Uh, he, he's, he's gone, I think maybe 15 years ago now. Oh, but, really? Uh, and then internally, finally, Dr. Lorraine Day. Yes, Lorraine. Surgeon. 
Mm -hmm. at San Francisco General. Almost comes across as your arch enemy. She was. <laughs> no way. She no tried other way to, to shut put it. you down. She tried to shut everything down. Um, I've lived long enough, and I've done this work long enough, and, and there have been recurring themes in my career, and it's that uh, almost every place I've been, I've had to deal with an insecure bully, somebody that hated you just because you were there, and they were jealous, and so they did everything they could to bully you and to belittle you and to, and to just, you know, nullify everything that you've done and um you know and she did that to me she did that to everybody else by the way i mean when when you see lorraine day you don't really need any explanation because she speaks for herself so clearly there's nothing like there's nothing like that hatred that bigotry that homophobia and i might point out that uh, just um by the way lorraine day ended up marrying uh congressman william dannemeyer um birds of a feather i guess when did you turn the corner? When did you a realize that what this was was HIV/AIDS, this mystery illness? And when did you start to get some relief, some medical answer? Not a total cure, obviously, but there, there's a, there's just one shot in Five B that kind of shows the pivot and it's a picture of Diane Feinstein on the unit with me and she's handing me a plaque and Merv Silverman is there and it looks like a big celebration it's just kind of passing in the film um, but that was that was the opening of 5A and that was in May of 1986 uh, three years after we opened 5B. 5B was a small 15-bed unit and, uh, and of course, we rapidly outgrew it. We knew that we needed more space. 5A was a full unit, and it was just down the hallway. And so we got that unit, got it all ready, and we had this huge celebration and opened it. And the, the reception, the way the community dealt with it, the way the international news dealt with it, um, I remember telling Merv Silverman afterwards, we turned the corner. And then within just a few months, a lot of other things started happening. We, you know, ACT UP was really very, very effective in what they were doing. We were really making great strides in antiretrovirals. And, 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 and so it's just like, you know, within, within a year, everything changed very quickly. You say uh, toward the end of the documentary, everybody around me died. Yeah. How did you survive? I don't know. Um... Uh, I remember, I remember my sister saying to me at one point. I mean, people always ask me if I was afraid. I mean, you know, when you're going through that, no, I, I would. I had too many other things going on to be afraid for myself personally. And actually, I didn't care. But and and it sounds callous, and it sounds. But you'd have to understand, you know, what it was we were going through. I, I just really, I. I it's kind of hard to put in words. Um, well, let me put it this way. Do you have any survivor guilt? Yes. Yes, yes. I've had to have therapy. Going through this process has been really cathartic for me. I, I realize now that, that I had, over the years, I'd gone on, I'd done a lot of other things with AIDS, and then now in, at, you know, at the end of my career, I'm working two more years. I didn't realize that I would have probably retired with all of this 
and living alone just quietly with my cats that I would have probably at some point in the next few years completely decompensated. And so being involved in this, getting all of this pulled back and being with the people that I worked with, the people that I love and that I'm surrounded with now has been uh, has been just a total blessing. And I'm hoping that it's lessons learned for younger people and for and for people that live through it to realize that we can't we can't forget this. We can't let this happen. And when you look at the things of this film, this is exactly what we're living now. So I think it's so timely. Living now in what sense? Living now in administration of Donald Trump. Um, you know, I try not to even go there. What I'm looking at is the political, the social, the economic, uh, just the total, the total upheaval uh, of of society and and where America is today. Uh, I thought 19, I thought the early 1980s was the end of the world. This feels like the end of the world to me. Cliff Marson, thanks so much for the great your great work, and thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you. The film again is 5bfilm.com, available. You can stream it as of August 27th. And that's it for today's edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget where you can find us twice a week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. In fact, wherever you go for your favorite podcast, we're there. You can find us. And while you're there, We ask you to help us in three different ways. First, easily subscribe to the Bill Press Bot. Hey, it's free. Two, tell your friends to subscribe. And three, while you're there, give us a great big five-star review. We need your help. We need that review to help get the word out and grow the podcast. Again, thanks to Cliff Morrison, our guest today, star of the great new powerful documentary 5B. Uh, You can find it at 5bfilm.com, available for streaming as of August 27. You'll be particularly uh, impressed to hear the great new song by Jackson Brown, written especially for the film, called The Human Touch. Both the documentary and Jackson Brown's song expected to be nominated for an Oscar this year. Again, thanks to Cliff Morrison. Thanks to all of you for listening. Come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll be looking for you.